Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. In honor of the Academy Awards this weekend, we have an extra special episode for you about the movie Bombshell. Bombshell is based on the sexual harassment scandal at Fox News that brought down CEO Roger Ailes. The movie is up for several awards. Best Actress for Charlize Theron, Best Supporting Actress for Margot Robbie, and Best Makeup and Hairstyling. I got to speak to the screenwriter, Charles Randolph, about how the movie came into existence and about his views on the awards process in general and the complicated politics that surround them. Charles, thank you so much for being here. This is a thrill for me. Gladly, gladly. I um, want to start talking about the process that led you to write the screenplay for Bombshell. Okay. And take us back. You had just, maybe it was right when you had just won your Academy Award for Big Short, or maybe it was before that. What was the timing in relation? Yeah, to it was that? not long after, you know. I so was, you're, you're at the top of your career. You've yeah. just won an Academy Award. And you're thinking, what project do I do next? How did you gravitate to the Fox News harassment story? Uh, wow, what a good question. You know, it's a, it's a great story, right? The fact that a, a story of feminist determination came from these conservative women was really interesting and complicated. Mm -hmm. And what you're always looking for is you're looking for characters with strong internal conflicts. We think of a movie being made about your life as a, an award that Hollywood gives you. But that's not, not the case. We are always looking for stories where people have a rich and unusual, and you need both, internal conflict that will drive the story forward. And Megan and Gretchen both had that. Megan Kelly, Gretchen Carlson. Exactly. Everybody know their, knows their names and first exactly. names are appropriate, but we should say it at least once. <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's what was the appeal. Like, this is a fascinating story with strong characters with strong conflicts. Also, I mean, I am a bit of a contrarian. So the idea that this m moment, pre-Me Too moment, 
with such illustrative power in our society came from inside Fox News was sort of fascinating. Although Me Too hadn't happened yet no, when hadn't. you sat down to write this. No, it hadn't. We'll get, we'll get to that more in a second. Sure, okay. But I just want to go back to this question of the conflicts. Right. I mean, to see the film is to believe you because you wrote them as characters with extraordinary conflicts. It's right. one of the reasons it's such a skillful script. But what conflicts did you see, as it were, before you started? I mean, when I hear that story, I don't think to myself, oh my goodness, what con- this is maybe why right, I'm not right, a screenwriter. Right. What made you think there were conflicts there? Did you know in advance there had to have been conflict? Megan Kelly was quiet for 10 days. Why? Right? This thing happens. It's in everyone's interest to go out and say, Roger's fine. This things, these things never happened. All that. But she was silent. Mm-hmm. Right? So what happened in that time? And that's where you start. You start with this thing of, hmm, that's really interesting. She was quiet. So, so, so you really are starting from that. You're starting from, hmm, there's a tell there. Let me ask a follow-up question about the tell. One of the remarkable things that you do is you tell stories that are true stories, but you're still in some way fictionalizing them for the screen. And that's an incredibly delicate dance in its own way. It's much harder than doing pure truth documentary or pure made up fiction. It's, it's just a higher degree of difficulty as it were on the dive. Right. So, you imagined that those 10 days embodied a conflict. Right. And you made a movie where those 10 days do embody a conflict. Yeah. Would it matter to you if, in fact, the 10 days were, you know, she called her lawyers and they were like, let's see how this plays out. You know, we have a goal of getting more money at the end of the day. And if it didn't reflect some internal conflict, would that matter or would it, it, really it would? Matter? It would. Um, you know, she's watched the film and she's come out and said that my portrayal of that internal conflict is too harsh in some ways against her mm-hmm. because she was always a strong advocate of women. And we have one character accuse her in her silence mm-hmm. of having, you know, perpetuated the culture of harassment. And then she re- reacts quite defensively in the film, mm-hmm. you know, in, in that sort of classic Megan Kelly way of saying, hey, that's how it is, snowflake kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so at the end of the day, yeah, I want the conflict to reflect a real internal dynamic that's going on in that human being. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it did. She even says, you know, I have to say, I don't know if you saw the video of her re- watching the film. Mm-hmm. She, she says, you know, I have to say, I, I do feel like I could have done more. So while my expression of it didn't please her, the underlying fact of it, I think, was appropriate. And she admits that. And so, yeah, so I'm always hoping that those things that you arrive at, those internal emotional conflicts that you arrive at, that they're true and that they will resonate. Because if they are, this is a place where the truth will lead you to something that you can't really make up as effectively or efficiently. And so, you know, I I always hope that, yes, that those portrayals, and it's true of Gretchen as well, reflect an underlying reality. Is that because you think it's as you said, more efficient from an artistic perspective, or is it an ethical concern? I mean, I have in my mind the famous maybe fictional exchange between Gertrude Stein and Picasso when, you know, she looks at her, his portrait of her and she sends him a note saying, it doesn't look like me. Right. And he sends her back a note saying it will. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you know, that's the case here. Your depiction of this story is the one that everyone will remember. Right. Not just Megyn Kelly, but her children and her grandchildren and the whole world. She herself will probably 
come to remember it in, in this way because that's the power of, yeah, of yeah. a film like this, of a, of a successful, widely viewed film. Yeah, I take that responsibility very seriously. I do, yeah. And it is it is largely an ethical concern to get it right. You know, there are things you have to cheat. You know, uh, time frames get truncated for sure. Dialogue is invented without doubt. The emotional flavor of individual scenes changes. But I want the, I want the, the struggles that these human beings go through in this world to be as true as possible. Let me ask you about, again, the background to that sort of remarkable video where you right. see Megyn Kelly responding to the right. film right. in which she is a character. Right. Very obviously, she did not know what was coming. Yeah. She had no say in your script. None. Technically, how does that happen? Is it that her story was sufficiently in the public domain that neither you nor the producers had to go to her to get any permission or any right to use her story? Yeah, I mean, it's not the dominant part of the narrative, right? And the, the narrative is broader than just her story. Sure. So part of it's that. Part of it is she is a public figure who's, you know, influenced our culture in big ways. And our laws are structured to, you know, shield anyone who wants to comment on her presence, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in a way. So, so a lot of this is, you know, obviously fair use. So technically it's, it's not a problem as long as you're being as truthful as possible. Also, we're, we're, we're using beats in moments that she's discussed a lot. She wrote a book about that sure. also appeared in other media narratives. It's not, you know, and, and, and appeared prior to her, her book as well. So, and, and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm talking to more than her. I'm, I'm interviewing, you know, 20 people at Fox. So some of these perspectives on scenes with her are from people who, you know, are in the room with her as opposed to coming from her directly. So she's just pretty lucky that you know, she gets a depiction that is, she may not have thought it was sufficiently sympathetic, but that is in certain respects sympathetic to her. I mean, part of it, no, there's a, there's a bigger issue here, which is that film is inherently humanizing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the critique that a film about someone will normalize them, will platform them isn't, is true. It mm -hmm. does. It inherently mm -hmm. does that. The um, worst person depicted on film will somehow be yeah. comprehensible. And if yeah. to understand all isn't maybe to forgive all. Yeah. It's least to humanize. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So even someone like Roger gets humanized. And, and this is also, I remember, happening in the shadow of a hyper-partisan culture where so many of our narratives are being driven by media that with which have been Twitterized to the degree we have a strong emotional, you know, reaction to these human beings already. We think we know. And so contrasting that is not difficult, let's be clear, right? Because there's been such vilification of, of parties on both sides of the aisle, any kind of normal human discourse um, that's short of odious often feels very humanizing, you know, strangely enough. That's assuming that it's short, short of odious. <laughs> right. But to right. go back to your ethical point, that also must be partly your choice. Yeah. yeah. To, to humanize, because that makes it greater art. Yeah. I'm a big believer that in this particular moment, especially the, the you know, art complicates. So part of it is in the shadow of, of partisanship, any kind of portrayal of a real human being feels grounded and humanizing in a way. And it seems particularly significant because that human is Roger Ailes, right, yeah. who is held responsible by so many people, rightly or wrongly, yeah. for our culture of vilification. Yeah, exactly. That's the irony. Yeah. I mean, that really is. I mean, that's like that's irony right. with, a, you know, with yeah. the, the bright red letter, capital letters. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So we are we are hopefully extending to Mr. Ailes something he didn't extend to the rest of the world. Right. And, and that's OK, because. You know, I'm fully aware of the fact that I'm being empowered by a, a massive amount of money and a massive distribution 
uh, network that will distribute my vision of these human beings around the planet. Mm -hmm. And so certainly that comes with a, with, with an obligation to hopefully be as, um, as judicious and human as possible. One thing about humanizing uh, sexual harasser, though, which I think is actually underlooked in the public discourse around this, is, of course, we're all eager to condemn everyone who engages in sexual harassment right. as evil. Right. But if you think that it's only the most extreme evil people who engage in sexual harassment, then it's really hard to explain why there's so much of it out yeah. there in the world. And Part so of it is realizing that yeah. lots of people who don't think they're such terrible people and who might in other domains of their lives not be so terrible, yep. could still do this. Absolutely. So the, the, the guy twirling his mustache, you know, is not the one who's going to create the most emotional damage in a woman's life. It's the person she considers a friend who on the business trip suddenly, you know, says, hey, let's go to the hotel bar and then go south from there. Or the, or the man she considers a mentor. You know, those are the situations where you get the most in trouble. So, so with Roger, part of it was creating a, a portrait of him that allowed us to sympathize with him to the degree that those scenes could have real power. You know, we reach the point of the conversation where, you know, two white guys are now talking about sexual harassment. Right. We can hear the little voice, uh, yep. you know, in our, in our ears saying, uh, what's wrong with this picture? And it won't be a sufficient answer to say, well, white guys do most of the sexual harassment. So why shouldn't we be the ones to, to speak about it in this contemporary era where we're all very focused and concerned appropriately yep. on agency? It seems like a violation of agency for the two of us to sit here and talk about sex harassment from the standpoint, as it were, of the harasser. Right. Um, when there are human beings, women being harassed, and right. we want to have the agency to speak about this topic. So I just want to ask you for your thoughts of starting with the critique that simply says, you know, why, why you? Yeah. Well, I wrote the script before the Me Too movement began in its most populous form. So prior to the Harvey Weinstein I've actually finished about three, well, two months before the Harvey case broke. That was fast work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so I wrote it over that, you know, after, just after the election over that spring. So in a way, there, there was no one telling that story at the time. Had Harvey's situation occurred, uh, I probably would not have written it. I probably mm -hmm. would not have sold it. I would have probably thought, oh, this issue is getting enough traction that I don't have to. Mm -hmm. So part of it's just, you know, this feeling that no one was saying, telling the story and it needed to be told. And that's, by the way, something that the public just isn't that aware of. They, they see a film coming out now, yeah. a couple of years yeah. after Me Too, and they think, oh, this was a yeah. Me Too movie, not realizing it just takes a long that time to put ever. together a film like they this. take forever. It's, yeah. I mean, contracts alone take eight months, you know, plus legal vetting on a film like this. It just takes forever. So part of your answer is, when you started doing it, there yeah. wasn't a Me Too. Yeah, but, 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 I, but that's, you know, that's a cop out. In this mm -hmm. I think there's a, a you know, let's, let's address the, the real problem is should men be telling these stories? And I go back and forth myself, mm -hmm. right? Partly, yes, there, you know, I'm also writing men in these situations and getting that right, getting that accurately mm -hmm. matters for helping us understand this. And certainly the other thing is my greatest desire is to put men in those rooms, like the situation in the film between Margot Robbie's character, Kayla, mm -hmm. and Roger Ailes. Because if I can put men in those rooms, they can see how these situations are, A, extremely complicated mm -hmm. uh, and can be utterly life-changing. I have found in my own life a tendency when these narratives pop up to be a little dismissive in an almost instinctual way. It's almost as though, you know, the minute I hear one of these stories, I have this 
Darwinian thing to say, yeah, but you know, she went into that office, like I immediately have that thing that comes up, that voice in my head, that masculine protective, that sort of gender defensiveness. And so I wanted to, I wanted to interrogate that part of myself. Mm-hmm. As, you know, as, as I say, I wanted to drag my own prejudices through, you know, a, a gauntlet of real lives and sort of, sort of examine on them. And so I, I guess I hope that in showing those situations to men around the world, I am doing the greater good and that I am willing to accept the critique that they're probably is someone who could have told this story better, who is woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she had not yet er- emerged. And so I did what I could. So it's interesting. There, there are sort of two strands. Yeah. One is the educative part. Yeah. And strand two, I thought, was the internal part, the yeah. part where every artist is to some extent grappling with his or her own internal voices and internal demons. Mm-hmm. And I think what you say is, I think it's true surely of the great majority of men and very possibly of just about all men that they will instinctively, even if their consciousness has been raised, identify with other men or want to deny the depth and extremity of, you know, what reality tells us. I mean, my version of that would be just time after time during the Me Too process saying, that guy, (laughs) that guy, (laughs) now that guy, you know, and just thinking to myself at a certain point, I realized, you know, you know, Noah, you just don't know what men are capable of. Right, right. You know, yeah. you just, you know, maybe you have your own superego is developed in a certain kind of way, you have a certain kind of guilt consciousness, but right. maybe not everybody's is, you know. But the point is just a recognition that I share that that same kind of gender protective instinct. I think we, we have it. Right. I think, though, that the left critique from a strong feminist would go after both of these things by saying, well, education is great, but couldn't you have picked another story to do it on? Right. Or, you know, why does this have to be men educating men using the story of women as their instrument? And then on the personal thing, they would say, well, that's it. They accept that they would accept that art always involves some self-exploration, right. but they'd want to see the film that would emerge if that self-exploration was from the woman's perspective rather than the men's. And then they would point to the industry and say, well, maybe no one had emerged, but maybe that's because women were denied the opportunity, you know, for their voices to, to emerge. And they would be right, right on both counts in my book, right? Yeah. And I would like to think that our film is moving the ball down the field, mm-hmm. right? And that someone else can come along and say, okay, here's this film. It was made for 30. It's going to make, you know, what, 50, 60 million worldwide. Mm-hmm. So there is, you know, there's a door open there that we can prove that these stories, right. there's an audience for these stories. Uh, and so that, so that we are, you know, we are um, delicately laying the the foundation for, you know, the quintessential Me Too movie to come along, you know, three, four, five, six years from now, totally done by women. Right. And when someone writes the Harvey Weinstein biopic, it will be a woman. Yeah. And I, th- and I think, I think the two people that are hired for that picture, I think the two projects are both women too, mm-hmm. right? You know, that makes sense. And so I was so, speaking abstractly, but, yeah. <laughs> but in yeah. real life, I guess <laughs> yes. that's already happening. Yeah. Yeah. Plan B's got one and I, I right. there's another one out there too. Right. And there's also a film, an indie film coming out uh, about assistant in Harvey's life. So, mm-hmm. so there are other things coming for sure, you right. know, and it's, but it's part of a, you know, it's part of this broader conversation about how we are going to reach some version of parody behind the camera. And how can we do that as ruthlessly efficiently and quickly as possible you see that playing out you know in in the oscar you know conversation right now but but you know uh, i'm more than willing to take whatever criticism comes by virtue of of 
of just wanting to do whatever we can to, to help the situation. Were there other critiques beyond the gender identity one that struck you as meaningful ones? Well, what, you get, what we get a lot of is frustration that the film does not take Megan to task more mm. for her complicity in the broader culture. I see. At Fox, right? That's a little difficult because what I wanted to avoid was making it sound as though right-wing ideology creates necessarily a context for harassment because we know that's not true. This is happening in every office around the country. Right. Um I think really at the end of the day, a lot of people wanted the race issue to be addressed. Hmm. And I struggle with this. You know, I had early drafts where, you know, I tried to address it. There's a, you know, sort of a famous bookkeeping office where things got pretty dark over at Fox and there were a couple lawsuits uh, of race-based harassment. I tried to have Roger walk into one of them one, at one point, you know, all this. And it just, it never worked. It felt like we were undermining the issue of harassment itself. Until I came up with this thing I was convinced was genius. Mm -hmm. Here's how I was going to solve this problem. Four, five, six times in the film, an African-American individual would wander in frame and they would see the camera. They would have sort of privileged gaze mm -hmm. of the sort of context of production, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, sorry, and back out, right? And so the idea was that any time an African-American person was introduced into the frame, they would be, oh, oh, sorry, and just leave the frame, right? Mm -hmm. To suggest that this is subtly and comedically a, not very subtly, comedically, a environment absolutely hostile to that perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, in saying that, you already know what I discovered in the editing room with Jay, which is this was a very bad idea. <laughs> it made it look like they were saying that the movie was a white yes. people's movie rather than that Fox it, News was a white people's environment. A, it was hard to read the intent but the fact you're asking the audience to read the intent mm -hmm. at the moment already suggests problems, right? right you know, right. and it was one of those things that was either confusing or just, it just felt like it was the disease it purported to cure, you know? Yes. And so, so at the end of the day, both the structural things I tried to do to address race at Fox and the playful things I tried to do just didn't work. Right. So that's, you know, you do what you can. Thankfully, it's a, you know, it's a medium that's uh, it's slow, but but we have the ability to correct our mistakes. And mm -hmm. we just took that out. And, 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 you know, now you can, as critics do, complain about their not address, addressing the race issue. So you mentioned the Oscar context. Right. And I think that's a great topic to, to talk okay. about here. Um, is there a revenge or reaction or blowback moment coming from the men? in the Oscar nomination process. I think you're seeing that now, right? I think this, this season is very male-driven with a lot of films addressing sort of male identity and revisiting male identity. And part of that, I think, is the fact that a certain core group of filmmakers who obviously uh, make movies about strongly male issues are making their films. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, I think we're at a little bit of a broader cultural blowback against Me Too. And I think the film season this year reflects that in some ways. Yeah. I want to talk about some concrete cases. Sure, like yeah. why didn't Greta Gerwig get exactly. nominated yeah. for Best Director for Little Women? I mean, yeah. I thought that Little Women was a terrific movie. But more importantly, I perceived, maybe wrongly, that what made it distinctive and different from all the other little women's right. that are out there was the kind of direct hand of the director. Yeah. You know, the sense that the director had a vision, was going a certain way, the presentation was distinctive, the outcomes were distinctive. And I was 
genuinely surprised in my ignorance that it didn't yield to a Best Director nomination. Explain to me what I'm what I'm missing because I think I am missing something yeah. well, or several things. Well, those of, in the in, of, of us in the industry were not as surprised because it had not won any of the precursor awards mm-hmm. that you normally get. I think the broader, most interesting thing for me to say about this mm-hmm. stuff is we are in the, the academy attempting to become reach gender parity and and to some degree inclusion on on a level of ethnicity, but that is coming with greater internationalization. Explain that. So that sounds really interesting. So that, for example, in the director's branch, the people we are inviting, the women we are inviting in to join the Academy tend to be, to vote. Exactly. Tend to be international. Mm -hmm. I think with a film like Greta's, what ended up happening is that international cohort probably did not respond to the film as powerfully as you did. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it is very American. It's a very American story. Sure. You know, uh, and it has... Classic American absolutely. tale. Yeah. And it has a kind of Christmas morning cheeriness to a lot of the scenes mm-hmm. that, that I think for... Literally. Yes. <laughs> for for some, you know, for some directors outside of this country seems just very American, mm-hmm. you know. So there's that. I think that. And that's a situation in which I think that internationalization maybe worked against mm-hmm. a film. But I think in terms of the performances, it, it helped. So SAG, for example, did mm-hmm. not nominate any of Screen the women. Actors Guild. Yeah, Screen Actors Guild for, the, for their awards did not nominate any of the women from um, uh, as, for, for Ensemble. And I don't think for any of the individual awards either. However, the acting branch of the Academy did so that group felt those performances were worthy of recognition mm-hmm. in a way that the more exclusively American group, which, you know, they, so what SAG does is they have a committee of people mm-hmm. that sort of, uh, I think it's by lottery, that, that, that nominates. So, so, you know, there are going to be good and bad things that come with that. It, on the whole, of course, it's great that we're becoming an international academy. What aspect of your experience, both in writing your film, writing Bombshell, and also in pitching it to the world and talking about it. Do you wish someone had asked you to speak about that no one has asked you about? If any, maybe every question has been asked and you've said everything you want to say, but is there something that hasn't been asked or that you would like to say about it? I mean, I think, I think the thing that's gone under theorized is how we are going to deal with the fact that Men, particularly older men, but men in the academy and in the filmmaking business have risen on the power of believing in their taste, Mm -hmm. believing that their gut instinct matters. Mm -hmm. And you see this in Stephen King's recent tweet about the fact that he doesn't use diversity when making artistic evaluations and judgments about excellence, right? And he got beat up for that. And he's, in a sense, the ultimate model Absolutely. of a person who's, whatever his instincts are, somebody is buying them, right? Absolutely. I saw recently a list of American authors and how many books are purchased, might've been worldwide authors. And he was just towering yeah. over people who sell millions of copies. Yeah. He towered over all yeah. of them. Anyway, so go on. So he's got, he's got that well-honed instinct, which he privileges as part of his core part of his identity, mm-hmm. right? Now we want to come along and say, Unfortunately, that instinct, it's not misogynistic. I think that's, I think it's wrong when we use that phrase. It's mm-hmm. more, you know, androcentric, I suppose, is the word I'm looking for. It's sort mm-hmm. of male-centered. But we have to get people like that to engage with the idea that diversity doesn't mean necessarily throwing out, you know, that gut, but rather just doing a series of checks, 
We've got to find a way to just somehow to introduce diversity and the discussion around diversity without this sort of naming and shaming Mm -hmm. and really get people to think through, okay, here's a film like Little Women. Yes, that beautiful scene where where, someone talks about, you know, I'm so sick of being women being defined for who they love, yet I want love. It's like a beautiful, beautiful moment, right? That's not going to resonate with a lot of guys, Mm -hmm. but we have to get them in a position where they can see its power, Mm -hmm. right? And I just feel like we do not have a good way to do that yet. One of the things I think we could do, which would help, is we could expand the best director category from five films to 10 films. Mm -hmm. And the way that ranked voting works, that would inherently be more inclusive. And since that's already been done in the past for other categories, right? It was done for best picture. It seems like a no brainer. Yeah. What's so interesting about the example of the awards is that the awards are symbolic. And if they were only symbolic, we wouldn't spend so much time worrying about them. But as I understand it in your industry, winning those awards translates into people sitting in the seat in the movie theater, which therefore translates into money. So winning the awards is actually a crucial component of how power gets deployed. And in that sense, it's super different from the way awards work in many other domains of life. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and to answer your question is, I feel like, I feel like the, the one conversation I'm not hearing as I've done the press for this film is a more honest conversation about gender politics and how gender politics influence our choices and how we can sort of arrive at solutions. I feel like what I'm getting a lot of is people wanting to evoke the problem, wanting to say this, but no one really wanting to kind of go through and, and not no one, but not enough people wanting to go through and, 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 and have a, a candid conversation about what's possible and what's not possible. Well, thank you for having that candid conversation with me. I'm really grateful to you for bringing this perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with studio recording by Joseph Fridman and mastering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Roskowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. 
we have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Thank you.